Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Daily Daf Differently. I'm David Greenstein, and we're studying Masechet Ketubot, Tractate Ketubot, Kuftet Amud Aleph Amud Bet, 109A and B. This page actually begins with the Mishnah starting at the bottom of 108B, the very last line. Mishnah brings up a case of a man who has committed a dowry for his daughter to the prospective groom, but then he reneges on his commitment. And the term that the Mishnah uses is a term that has entered modern Hebrew as well, Pashat lo etaregel. He literally stretched out his foot. This is taken to mean that he went bankrupt. But as in the modern uses of the word to go bankrupt, so too in the Hebrew, it's not clear why exactly he's not able to pay his commitment. Even in today, when people go bankrupt, it doesn't mean that they have absolutely nothing in their bank account. But rather, they may have some assets, but they're trying to protect those assets from being used up to satisfy certain obligations that they have. They worry that they don't have enough to satisfy all their obligations, and they'd rather keep what they have rather than use it up on the obligations that they have, so they declare bankruptcy. So too over here, it's not clear why the father claims that he cannot pay the dowry. One translation of the term literally means, Pashatlo directly stretched out his foot, means that he hightailed it out of here. He disappeared. Another translation is that he sort of, instead of giving someone, as we would say today, giving someone the finger, he gave someone the foot. He simply said, I refuse. I'm not paying. I don't have it. I don't want to pay it. I can't pay it. Other translations are that he simply really does not have the money. We'll see how this plays out in the discussion on our page of Talmud. The problem now is the dowry is not going to be delivered to the groom as promised. And the groom is angry. And the engagement has already happened. But the completion of the marriage ceremony is now up to him. And he's holding off. So the Mishnah says that the bride is stuck. She is powerless to change the situation. And literally, she may have to spend her entire life until she grows gray and old. She may have to sit there until her hairs grow white on her head. Admon objects. And he says, why is this her fault? Why are we penalizing her? Had she made a commitment that she hadn't lived up to, then we could understand why the groom might want to get back at her by uh, making her suffer. But she didn't make this commitment. It's her father who made the commitment. So why penalize her? Rather, we have to make him decide. Either go on with the marriage or give the bride a divorce. And Rabban Gamliel says, I see the words of Admon as making the most sense. That's our Mishnah. The Talmud will discuss now, in this Mishnah and following, various aspects of what does it mean to take 
a person's commitment uh, at face value? How do we understand those commitments? What do we do when somebody doesn't live up to those commitments? And then goes into various other aspects of what does it mean to understand the expressions that people make. Can we extend extenuating reasons for why they have said what they've said without blaming them and without holding them responsible for what they have committed to? How do we understand the language that people use in real life? In this particular case, the Talmud suggests that Admon's argument is so compelling that it's hard for us to believe that our Mishnah really is posing a conflict of views in such a case. And we instead say that the argument is not at all about that straightforward case as we understood it first in our Mishnah. Rather, the argument is about a case where it is the woman who has promised the dowry to her fiancé, and then she hasn't been able to bring the dowry to the marriage. And she says to her fiancé, I really believed that my father would back me up on this, and unfortunately I was wrong. I made the commitment in good faith. Please understand and don't be angry. And the sages say that the groom has the full rights to withhold the continuation of the marriage ceremony because she should have paid much more attention to whether or not she could live up to her obligation. And Admon says, come on, give her a break. It's totally understandable that she should have trusted that her father would bring the dowry to the marriage as she promised. Furthermore, we understand that it depends on how old the bride is. If the bride is a minor, we do not penalize her for making the promise that the dowry would be brought to the marriage, and we force the groom not to marry her, but rather to divorce her. The rules of marrying a minor are that the father has the right to marry off his daughter when she is a minor, but here clearly the father is not interested in supporting his daughter by giving her a dowry, and therefore we would rather end the marriage and we compel the groom to give the girl a divorce. But we need to understand this a little bit more closely. If we're really talking about a minor making a promise of bringing in a dowry, then we come up to the problem that she has no standing to make that promise. We can't believe a minor who makes such a promise. Rather, we would have to understand this to be that the woman is a minor, but it is the father who made the promise, and we are again saying that she should not be punished for the refusal of the father to live up to his obligation. We need to also understand what does it mean to say that the father refuses to pay the obligation to bring in the dowry to the marriage. This goes back to the question of what does it mean, Pashat Lo that he went bankrupt because the Gemara wants to understand why we don't go back to the father and get the dowry by force from his estate. After all, he made the promise. And the Gemara doesn't answer, well, he's bankrupt, so he doesn't have it. So the simplest meaning, therefore, for reading this Gemara is that it's not that the father doesn't have it, but that he is refusing to pay the dowry, even though the funds or the materials, the resources, are available. We should note that the Talmud 
mentions that because Rabban Gamliel expresses his own agreement with Admon, this gives added weight to Admon's position, even though it may be a minority position against a number of other sages. We would ordinarily decide the halakha according to the majority view. But because Rabban Gamliel throws his weight behind Admon's position, the Talmud says that whenever Rabban Gamliel says that he agrees with Admon, halakha kamoto, then the halakha follows Admon's position. Despite this categorical statement, the Talmud has problems with it. And on the previous page, the Tosafists point out that we do not, in the end, actually follow Admon's opinion in a previous Mishnah where Rabban Gamliel also agreed with Admon's statement. So we have to take the statement of support for Admon as a halachic norm with a grain of salt. Even though the Talmud says it, we still don't feel compelled to follow that statement. Further down on the page, we have a different kind of situation where a person is challenging the ownership of a field and he says that the field was taken 